Rick, and I am really glad that you're able to join us for worship today. We're continuing a story, a story that I believe will absolutely bring transformation in your lives. It's a story about a God who loves us so very, very much. We started this story or this journey a few weeks back, but this journey starts in your Bible, in the book of Genesis, and goes all the way to the book of Revelation. To help us stay focused and encourage participation, I'm using the book, The Story, where pastors Max Lucado and Randy Frazee have developed the format, the curriculum, the artwork, well, just about everything. I am so encouraged as I chat with many of you, and, and as you are reading this story, whether it's through that book or, or in the back of your bulletins, we've got readings for next week and discussion questions for you, that you might be able to go just a little bit deeper than what maybe you're used to going. You see, the Bible is the grand narrative that tells a story of God. This story speaks of God's great love for all of mankind. And it's filled with intrigue and drama and conflict and romance. Did I say conflict? Yes, conflict and romance and even redemption. You see, the Word of God or the Bible or the Scriptures, they help us see God clearer. And as we see God clearer, our perspective changes. Life change naturally happens when we see God clearly, and we are captivated by Him. Each of our 31 chapters in the story cover a large portion of Scripture. And as you can see, today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, uh, chapter 1 through chapter 7, and chapter 10 through 17. And to be quite honest, for us to be able to share all of this story is almost impossible in the time frame that we have. In some ways, for some of you, it's like drinking from a fire hose. You are just hearing these stories, and, and sometimes just a sentence of mine will cover a chapter. So we want to encourage you to get it all. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is by reading the scriptures ahead of time or following up. Maybe it's something, again, that, that you just have an opportunity to even do as a family. But let me give you a quick review before we jump into chapter 4 today. God created a perfect environment and had a perfect relationship with Adam and Eve. That was until they broke the relationship with God, their father. In the midst of our broken world, God continues to pursue and to offer us life in spite of our bent to literally run away from life or run away from our good, good Father. Well, God is gracious and truly desires that garden relationship, that relationship He had with Adam and Eve, that relationship that well, they enjoyed God and he enjoyed them so very, very much. Well, after the flood, though, God decides it's best to establish a nation, a special group of like-minded people intent on knowing God as much as God really wanted to know them. He chose an older, childless couple to miraculously be the parents of this new nation. Adam and Sarah's faith was rewarded. They gave birth to Isaac, who gave birth to Jacob, who gave birth, well, literally to 12 sons, and they birthed the nation of Israel. Last week, we focused on how God turns man's evil plans into good, something we call God's sovereignty. It's one of the hardest doctrines in all of the scriptures to understand. But Joseph had a great story. Did you find yourself all this week, literally, just talking about Joseph? Just different circumstances in your life, different arenas that seemed to come up. And all of a sudden, I found myself just thinking about Joseph. 
and recognizing that young man's faith in God. Actually, the way that Joseph forgave is inspiring. I don't even come close to that, but I want to. And I know that God enables each one of us to forgive others in a way that goes way beyond anything we can do by ourselves because we can trust God for the payback, for the vengeance, for making it right. Well, this morning our chapter focuses on Moses. And I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. Moses? I've heard about Moses like forever. There's movies about Moses. I know that story. Well, hopefully we're going to look at it in a broad stroke today. That might encourage you. Because remember, Moses was really the only one in all the scripture that was called the friend of God. What made Moses a friend of God? Wouldn't that be cool that someday when you, well, hopefully not soon, but die, and you get one of those really nice uh, tombstones, wouldn't it be amazing to just have on there your name, that's because you're the one that just died, and under it, friend of God. Whoa, that would be so cool. That'd be really cool if it were true. It'd be really cool even if you just wanted that. And we're going to look at that. So let's pray before we jump into chapter 4 of our story found in Exodus chapters 1 through 7 and 10 through 17. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the scriptures. I want to say again, God, that we are so grateful that we have your story. And all the way through every single page, your love for us jumps. The desire you have for a relationship just shouts. And we just want to say thank you. We want to pray for the other churches in our area, in our state, in our country, in our world, Lord, that are proclaiming your good news, that are teaching, even right now, your word. And we pray, Father, that your people would grow in their relationship and that you would supernaturally change them and that we would be salt and light in all of our world. We look forward to what you're going to teach us today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we jump into our text today, The scriptures reveal Israel's really dark time. As you read through scriptures, you always see times when Israel was doing really, really well. Other times they were just floundering. Well, this was a lousy time. And in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8, 11, and 13, this is what the scriptures tell us. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph for what he had done. You know, that's amazing right there. Okay, it is. But it happened. Verse 11. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. It was in a bad spot. These special people that had the best of all the land of Egypt were growing like weeds. And they caught the attention of Pharaoh. But Pharaoh didn't know about Joseph. I find that just so hard to believe. But it was time once again for God to reveal his name, his power, and his plan. In Exodus chapter 2, again, you can follow along in your Bibles, or you can uh, just look up at the screen. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died. 
But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel, and he knew it was time to act. God needed the right person. Yet God's choice once again puzzles us. We only know Moses of, well, the great Moses. The Moses that was the amazing leader that walked through the Red Sea. That was the friend of God. But to be quite honest, Moses did not start off that way. God continues to choose the most unlikely people to play leading roles in history, in his story. Isn't that exciting, actually? Isn't it? I, I think I get more excited just seeing the weaker vessels that God uses, the people that are so dependent, the humble people. And that's what I want to grow in. I want to grow in this dependence on God, in this humility, in this opportunity to be able to say, whoa, anything Rick does, it's got to be God. Look at him. And I think that's the kind of guy Moses was. We have noticed that God's story seems to unfold in ways that seem hidden, even contrary to our limited view and our information. We learn about Moses, his family, and God's plan in the book of Exodus for the most part. After a miraculous rescue, and we mean it's pretty cool. You know, he's floating as a baby in the Nile. Whoa, the princess just so happened to be there bathing, and the princess just so happened to be able to find the basket, and the princess just so happened to talk to his sister, and the sister just so happened to be able to have his mom be the nurse. Whoa, a lot of so happens right there, all right? But Moses then was raised in Pharaoh's household. Some even think he was being groomed for the next pharaoh. He was going to be a pretty important person. But the scriptures say that Pharaoh messes up. I'm sorry, that Moses, Pharaoh probably did too, but Moses messes up and he runs. So the, the young man that had everything, the best education, the best food, the best clothing, the best electronics, the best everything, runs, ends up in a desert. Whoa. He finds some female shepherds, helps them, eventually marries one, and for the next 40 years, the prince of Egypt is a shepherd. Spending time, the majority of his time, with sheep. Interesting. Forty years later, God finds him in the desert. He is tending his father-in-law's sheep and actually minding his own business. He's on Mount Sinai. Again, very interesting because he's going to visit Mount Sinai quite a bit during his travels. But he's there on Mount Sinai when God appears in a burning bush and he reveals his plan. God talks to Moses and said, Moses, you are the man. Our, well, your relatives are all in trouble. I'm going to have you lead them out of captivity. Well, in spite of God choosing, Moses feels overwhelmed and unqualified. So Moses courageously declines the partnership. Can you imagine that? Imagine, first of all, God even talking to you. All right. Now, he does, maybe not out of a burning bush, I'm, I'm pretty sure. But that would be pretty spectacular. A mo. Yes. Here's the plan. Here's the deal. Why don't we go to Egypt together? Uh, no, God. No, no. Wrong guy, wrong time. No, it is not going 
to happen. So before we look down on Moses, let me just remind you of a few things. Because we forget what 40 years in the desert hanging out with sheep really do to you. Okay? First of all, people fear public speaking more than death. It really is true. Look at some of the statistics. And you, you know, I mean, even public speaking class in high school and college is like, I would rather like die. Now, that's not really true, but, but that's what you feel like. So Moses wasn't into that. Secondly, 40 years in the desert doesn't refine your social skills or your vocabulary. Not at all. And lastly, Moses had some Egyptian skeletons in the closet. Remember, basically he left as a wanted man. If he were to go back there, would he be killed immediately? All of a sudden, hanging out in the desert with a bunch of sheep looked really, really good. But God did not give up. So this 80-year-old shepherd Moses must have been quite the sight. God, in fact, sees his weakness as providing the best conduit for his power and his strength. 80 years old. I don't want to have a raise of hands on who's 80 years old today. Or maybe a little older or very, really, really close. I just want you to know, God sometimes has planned for 80-year-olds. Yeah. Anyway, going forward, what God wanted is the only explanation for whatever was going to happen would be God. So it wasn't about Moses' leadership or even Moses' skill or even that Moses grew up in Pharaoh's court. It was going to happen that whatever God did, people would look back and say, whoa, that was a God thing. That was a God thing. That was a God thing. It was not a Moses thing. Moses did not go as a seasoned general or a skilled communicator, which maybe he could have a couple years after he ran. But God took 40 years to help him depend on him differently so that he was a humble, lowly shepherd. The only promise God gave him is, I'm going to be with you which is kind of a cool promise, in Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 12, God answered Moses after he was putting up his hands, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent you, they will ask me, what's his name? Then, what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Remember the name of God, and there's so many names in the scripture, we're going to be introduced to two of them even this morning. But the name of God really carries with the person of God. And really what, what Moses heard is, hey, when the children of Israel ask, who sent you, Moses? Well, the God who existed before time. The God who was always around. That is the God that sent me, the creator God. That God sent me. Okay. Well, God continues to set up Moses well. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 19, and then jumping to chapter 4, this is what God says. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last, he will let you go. And I will cause the Egyptians to look favorably upon you. They will give you gifts when you go, so that you will not leave empty-handed. Every Israelite woman will ask, 
Why every woman? Never mind. Every Israelite woman will ask for articles of silver and gold and find clothing from her Egyptian neighbors and from the foreign women in their houses. You will dress your sons and daughters with these, stripping the Egyptians of their wealth. Now go. I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you what to say. And so what happens is Moses goes toe-to-toe with the most powerful man on the planet. He meets the Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5. After this presentation to Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron went to speak to Pharaoh. They told him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Is that so, retorted Pharaoh. And who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. But Aaron and Moses persisted. The God of the Hebrews has met with us, they declared. So let us go, or let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness so we can offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. If we don't, he will kill us with a plague or with the sword. Pharaoh replied. First name basis, remember, right here already. Moses and Aaron. Why are you distracting the people from their task? Get back to work. Look, there are many of your people on the land and you are stopping them from work. Things didn't go exactly as planned. But actually, by this time, it didn't stop Moses. It didn't stop Aaron. And in Exodus chapter 6, starting at verse 1, then the Lord told Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave the land. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name or my person, Yahweh, to them. Moses has a little bit extra information. I just want you to know one of my names is Yahweh. One of my names is El Shaddai. One of my names is I am the most powerful God of all gods. Go. You know, as you read through, and some of you have noticed this as you read through the scriptures, but there's this one phrase, Moses and Aaron did just as God commanded them. And I think, again, that's so worthy of underlining. Because what makes Moses great to be quite honest, is that in spite of how scared he was, in spite of how unqualified he felt, you know what he did? He just obeyed God. When God said, go do this, eventually he said, okay. When God said, go say this, eventually he said, I will. And God saw some transformation that happened. But God reinforces his message through Moses in a way that nobody could doubt or ignore. The plagues, they were relentless and did exactly what God wanted them to do. God would display his power, soften the Egyptians, and spread God's fame. In Exodus 7, When I raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know I am the Lord. There'll be no doubt. In Romans chapter 9, verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes this, For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. And you know what? The plagues did just that. First, there was blood. Well, in the Nile. Then there were frogs. 
frogs everywhere. And then gnats. I mean, we're like being infested with mosquitoes right now. But gnats, oh, unbelievable. And then at this moment, God changes a little bit of his activity. Because at that time, all of, all of Egypt was suffering, including the Israelites. But after the gnats, all right, the flies came. But when the flies came, all of a sudden in the land of Goshen, right where the Israelites lived, no flies. You could step right across the border and be inundated with flies. You'd step back over the border, no flies. Flies, no flies. Flies, no flies. That's pretty cool, especially if you don't like flies. Then a livestock disease and boils and hail and locusts. All this happening. And then eventually darkness. Wouldn't darkness have been cool? Especially light in Goshen, darkness in, in the rest of Egypt. Just going back and forth. Oh, I need sunglasses here. Oh, no, I don't. Oh, and then you go back and forth, and there it is. All right. But the tenth plague. The tenth plague, found in Exodus 11 and 12. And honestly, if you haven't read any of the stories so far, I would go back even this afternoon and read Exodus 11 and 12. It's such a powerful part of Scripture. And the tenth plague is both devastating and revealing. God seems to, at this moment, be judging Pharaoh's horrific earlier edict. Do you remember when, well, Pharaoh was trying to destroy the Israelites? And he said, hey, you can keep all the baby girls, but all the baby boys. I want you to throw them into the Nile. Well, look what Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 says. On that night, God said, I will pass through the land of Egypt, and I will strike down every firstborn son and every firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt, and I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. Well, what was the plan? The plan seemed a little goofy, the plan seemed a little crazy. They were supposed to get a spotless lamb, each of the Israelites, and they're supposed to hang out with the lamb for four days. I don't know what that means. All right. Then they were going to kill the lamb, and they were going to sacrifice the lamb, and they were going to gather the lamb's blood, and they were going to paint the doorposts of their homes with the lamb's blood. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 13 and verse 28, but put the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, making the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the people of Israel did just what the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. You know, the Jews still celebrate Passover. It might be the greatest of all of their religious holidays other than Yom Kippur. But Jesus, how ironic or how special or how uh, part of God's plan. He celebrates the Passover. He eats the Seder meal with his disciples on Thursday. He gets crucified on Friday. Whoa, the perfect and the final sacrifice. The blood is significant all the way through the scriptures. But Moses sent the word out. I'm sure, again, making sure that everybody, everyone got the the message. You must be covered by the blood. It was the blood that's going to save you. Now some of us, especially as we look back in the Older Testament, see that animal sacrifices continued until the perfect Lamb of God shed His blood. Well, it's something so hard to understand, but it's something really important to 
to understand. God was preparing his people to understand about the atonement. That it did take the blood. It took the life of someone to save others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, again, the Apostle Paul writes, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. To many of us, it just kind of grew up reading the Bible. Not a big deal. But to a Jew? Oh, my word. Are, are you telling me that Jesus was the perfect Passover lamb? In John 1.29, a book that we just spent quite a bit of time in, right before Jesus came and, and John the baptizer was baptizing, he said this, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now one thing I do want to point out is that the blood must not only be shed, it must be applied. They could have done all the right things back in Israel. They could have killed the lamb, they could have pulled the blood and everything. But if they did not put it on the doors, they would have lost the firstborn in their household. Oh, it must be applied. Even now, we may believe, many of us, maybe our neighbors, many in our neighborhood, well, we believe Jesus died. We believe he shed his blood. We, we do. But why? So that we might have our sins and our debts paid for. So the perfect Lamb of God might redeem us back to a place where we might have a real relationship with God. As so many of you know, Pharaoh finally changes his mind and the exodus begins. The most um, historical references will, will probably put the Jews in the one to three million category. Oh, whoa, that's a lot of people. But can you imagine their joy? Can you imagine what went on when they finally heard, you can leave? No more slavery. In Exodus chapter 13, starting at verse 17, I'm going to read. When Pharaoh finally let... When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through the Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people were faced with a battle, they might change their mind and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Thus the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this. He said, God will certainly come to help you. When he does, you must take my bones with you from this place. So the Israelites left Sokoth and camped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. So the Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud and provided a light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or night. And the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites to turn back and camp by Philhaltham, between Meddal and the sea. Camp there along the shore, across from Belzephon. Then Pharaoh will think. The Israelites are confused. They are trapped in the wilderness. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after you. I have planned this, God said, in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped where they were told. Camped with hills on each side. Camped with the Red Sea in front of them. Kind of like camped in a place where they would be sitting ducks. 
Whoa. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Oh. Well, Pharaoh changes his mind. As we know, and God leads his community to the perfect spot. None of us would choose this spot. Wouldn't. We would not want to be penned in. But in Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 5, when the word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his official changed their mind. What have we done letting all of our Israelite slaves go away? So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot, called up his troops, took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots, along with all the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. Whoa. It was about this time, I'm sure, that as the Israelites were standing there, they saw the dust coming up. They had to be a little bit afraid. And so Moses in chapter 14, starting at verse 13, says this. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Really? <laughs> really, Moses? We know this guy is not the nicest guy. It doesn't look like we're in the best spot. It seems to me like our goose is cooked. And Moses said, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you. Oh, okay. okay. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen today, uh, again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Really? Okay, we're going to stand here. The Egyptians are coming with the greatest of their armies, and we have the Red Sea in front of them. Verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? <laughs> which, which makes it, uh, it it's kind of humorous in some ways, because he's telling the people to be courageous. And then I sense at this exact moment, he leaves the people and he starts talking to God. God, what are you doing? Like, okay, I just told them not to worry, but look, look at our situation. God. And God says, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff, raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water. It's almost like we had the plan. All you have to do is start moving. Raise your staff. What is your problem? And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. And they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops and his chariots when my glory is displayed to them all of Egypt will be able to see the Lord. And you can read through that, but Moses finally raises his hand, his staff. An unbelievable thing happens. All of a sudden, the Red Sea parts. The scriptures tell us that the ground was dry and there were walls of water. Oh, this was cool. All right? Now, I don't know how many of you fear water. I don't know how many of you like fish. I don't know all that stuff. But there had to be a few people, maybe 13-year-old boys, that'd be running, following, and sticking their hand in. Whoa, whoa, whoa! I don't know. Maybe someone was even crazy enough to do a little dive. Jump in, swim out. Jump in, swim out. I do not know. Or maybe they were all petrified and just ran like crazy. But never before was anything like this. They moved. And they moved. And they moved. God literally, as you're going to see a little bit later in chapter 14, caused the greatest malfunction of chariots in history. Wheels were stuck in mud. Well, it was dry ground. How did that happen? Wheels fell off. 
How did that happen? And eventually, the water came back. What, were, what was the response of the Israelites in Exodus chapter 14, verse 31? When the people of Israel saw the mighty power, remember the name that Moses was going to use? El Shaddai, God Almighty. They never thought this could happen. Who would have planned this? All right? But when, the is, but when the people of Israel saw the mighty power, saw El Shaddai had unleashed his power against the Egyptians. And again, I encourage you, if you mark Bibles, this would be worthy of a mark. They were filled with awe before them. Awe. My guess is that's probably something that misses in many of our churches and many of our families and many of our cultures today is awe. It's seeing God so clearly you can't talk. It's seeing God so clearly you fall down on your face. You're wondering why he doesn't consume you. And the children of Israel, they were filled with awe before him, and they put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Yeah. There's no story like this. It's a story that God uses over and over and over again, all the way in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I am the God that opened the Red Sea. No other God has done that, and no other God will do that. Broke every physics law possible. Whoa. Chuck Swindoll speaks of the children of Israel here. And he calls this kind of the wilderness cycle. And, and I have to agree with him as you continually read through well, the wanderings and the time that the children of Israel spent, whenever God provided for them and there was great abundance, and you'll see this, there was singing and dancing and worship. There was a party time. This is unbelievable. We have a great God. But what happened as the cycle continues that, well, the children of Israel expected God to be miraculous every single day. And in case you don't know, the word like miracle means like a miracle. It doesn't happen every day. Always it would be a normal thing. Um, God chooses to work sometimes in miracles. Doesn't mean God isn't at work. But what would happen is that there would be great provision and abundance but the Israelites would automatically assume, hey, God needs to do another miracle. God needs to do another miracle. And there'd be disappointment. You'll see it over and over with water. You'll see it over and over with food as they travel through. And then there are complaints. And then there are consequences because of lack of faith and disobedience. And then there's grace. Because God is a God of grace. And He rescues. Then the cycle starts all over again. There's provision and abundance before it turns into expectation, disappointment, complaints. You see, in the Bible and actually in our lives, this cycle happens again and again and again. The story as we have it quickly moves and we end at chapter 17. In some ways, I'm just overwhelmed each week as we look at the amount of Scripture we're trying to cover. And there's so many truths and so many things that jump out to me. And there's pages and pages of notes, and you sit there and you X this out and X that out. But today, what I tried to do is let's look at the upper story and the lower story. The first, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about God today? God is sovereign. God 
is able to do things his way in his timing. There were times that, that God led Israel, especially in this case, into the most ridiculous place in all of Egypt. But he did it for a reason. He did. God, in fact, used Pharaoh. Wasn't Pharaoh the bad guy? Wasn't Pharaoh the royal creep? Of course. But God used Pharaoh. He is not dependent on God followers or God fears to accomplish his purpose. You know, this last week, I've been reading through Isaiah. And you can mark this down in your notes, but uh, in Isaiah chapter 45, it's an amazing chapter. Because as you go through Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah the prophet begins to share how Cyprus, uh, excuse me, Cyrus, a king, a very evil king, is being used by God in God's plan. You're like, whoa, this is puzzling. This is a little scary. Like, God, what are you doing? What are you up to? And we find out over and over again that sometimes God's ways and God's plans puzzle us. But the big thing is, God is about redemption. He's about a relationship. He's about restoring a broken relationship. As you read through the rest of Exodus, keep this in mind, that Exodus's over, overall theme is redemption. This is a God that is bent on redeeming. But let's look at the lower story. Because without the lower story, we're going to leave here, I think, a little empty. But what I found all the way through the Scripture is that humility pleases God. God uses the humble and the weak. And if you look at even Moses' life, lived about 120 years, First 40 years, unbelievable training. The best of everything. Second 40 years, well, a lot of alone time with sheep and God. The last 40 years is what we focus on. And that's because God used that 40 years in the desert. He's ready now. He's a humble, weak vessel, ready to be used. But God walked with him. And that's really the promise we have today. You may not be the sharpest, although you might be. You might not be the most brilliant and the most gifted and the most wealthy and the most, and you can just put it in there. But you know, God loves taking his kids, building them up, watching them depend on him, and allowing the Holy Spirit to do some amazing, crazy things. We find that faith always pleases God. Whether it's, God, you want me to put blood on a doorpost? Yeah, I do. Okay. Or, God, you want me to walk through the Red Sea? What happens if this, like, Red Sea springs a leak halfway through? I guess it's a possibility. Spring a leak halfway through. I want you to walk through. And I think sometimes after God does some amazing things in our life, and God does, that's why we're encouraging you to journal as we talked about the whole BELLS kind of acronym. But to journal when God works, journal when God grows you in, in different places. But celebrate God well. Do you realize that sometimes we forget that God just allowed us to walk through the Red Sea? We didn't party well. We, didn't, we weren't in awe very much. We just kind of, oh, another day. That was cool. Walk through the Red Sea today. That was fun. What's next, God? Really? How about, 
How about if we take time during those times when God shows up big, huge, huge, and thank Him, falling on our face. Hey, I want to encourage you as we continue this. There are some great discussion questions at the end of your bulletins. Talk about it. Talk about it with your families, with your spouse, with different folks. Uh, go deeper in this. Please be reading ahead of time. Whether you have the book or not, it's all listed there. But I guarantee that as you begin to let God well clarify your vision of himself, and as you become more obedient, as I become more obedient, we're going to see a really amazing God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your grace. We thank you for all that you've done in our lives. Lord, forgive us for not having faith in you, for thinking at times, Lord, that we know more than you, that circumstances that we're in, we don't like. There's times, God, when there's mountains on both sides. I don't like that. And there's a Red Sea in front of me. Lord, I do not like that because I can't win. I'm not strong enough and I'm not powerful enough. But you know what, God? You are. And all you want to do is display your glory through me. You want me to trust you. And when you open up the Red Sea, you want me to walk through. And when I walk through, God, you want me at the end to be able to dance and to celebrate and to fall on my face. God, would you do that more? Would you forgive us of not seeing you clearly and not giving you glory? In Jesus' name, amen.